0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Sometimes the Bible just won't cooperate. Sometimes it just won't say what we want it to or what we think it should say. Sometimes no matter how hard we try, we just can't clean up its ambiguities or offenses or soften its challenges. I know because I have tried. I have tried to make this parable make sense. I've tried to find its meaning, a preachable meaning, that is, or at least to make it less scandalous. And it just wouldn't cooperate. It still won't cooperate. So here I am. Here you are, perhaps as befuddled as Jesus' first disciples when he turns to them and tells them about a rich man who hears that his manager has been squandering his property. So the rich man summons his manager, demands an accounting and dismisses him. The manager for his part thinks fast and comes up with a sure-fire plan to ensure his future by ingratiating himself to his master's debtors. And He executes his plan with the skill of a criminal mastermind. He summons the debtors one by one, so there are no other witnesses, no accountability, no one watching as they drop their scruples, he has the debtors write down the new amount in their own hand. There's no sign of his own handwriting. It's their fingerprints on the pen or quill or whatever they are using. And With the stroke of a pen, he reduces almost arbitrarily a debt of 100 jugs of olive oil to 50, 100 containers of wheat to 80. These are big amounts, mind you. And He does all of this, not for any greater good that we can see, but to protect his own hide and make sure it has a place to sit at the end of the day and his master commends him. What? Did we hear that right? Yes, that's what it says. His master commended, not condemned, but commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. That's right, in the same sentence. This, mas- this manager is called Dishonest and commended for acting shrewdly. Then follows this string of sayings that are as cryptic and confusing as the story itself. The children of light could learn from the shrewdness of the children of this age or make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth. Now, that doesn't exactly clear things up for me, and that definitely makes no sense. It's a problem. It's a problem if you expect the Bible to give straight answers and clear moral instructions. It's a problem if you think you're supposed to like and imitate its characters, and expect them to be good people, good moral exemplars. That means innocent and trusting, right? Not shrewd, not concerned with money, except to give it away, expecting nothing in return. Not worrying about their life, about the future, about tomorrow, or what they'll eat or wear. really concerned with self at all, but with the common good and the needs of others. and Definitely not trying to buy friends or hustle their way into the eternal home or secure their own salvation. Is Jesus telling us to be like that? I can hear Martin Luther sitting up in his grave and calling out, nine, no, beware. Beware the idea of storing up good works to expedite your entry into eternal homes or into heaven. That's how we got the buying and selling of indulgences. Do you remember that from your high school history class on the Protestant Reformation? Beware works righteousness. Beware self-interest and impure motives. Beware relying on yourself or on wealth. Put your faith in God alone and in God's grace. Yes, we have a problem. A problem that Protestant interpreters have tried to tackle by cleaning up the steward's character, reconciling it with their expectations. You know that money he slashed off his master's debts? That was his commission, some say. He was just giving up his own commission. Or, another take, it was interest. He was knocking off the interest that had accrued through the practice of usury, which, by the way, Torah forbids. Except, let's face it, there's nothing in the text to support this. And really, there doesn't seem to be any mathematical formula governing his debt relief program. Okay. so Then he was righting a wrong. He was breaking the rules of an unfair game. What we have here is a first-century Robin Hood, stealing from the rich to give to the poor, except that the debtors aren't exactly poor. These are big amounts they are working with, and except that the manager expects them to become beholden to him as well. So Here we are with a parable that just won't cooperate, that just won't Say what we think it should. So let's just set that project aside and try listening to what it does say. Try taking it at face value with this dishonest, self serving protagonist who is commended for his shrewdness. That is not to say that we today are going to arrive at the answer. Of course, we're not. I'm still working with this parable. You are still working with this parable. Or rather, it's still working with us. But still, we can see something true and familiar and honest in it, can't we? It's true that we live with imperfect situations, imperfect systems, imperfect solutions, imperfect people with imperfect motives. It's true that every single one of us is one of those imperfect people ourselves. Our motives are also mixed. We also serve our own interests even as we serve others. Think about it. How often have you heard or thought yourself when helping someone, oh my goodness, I got so much more out of that than they did. Sometimes, of course, it's also true that the reward, the benefit of some good work, comes later, much later. It's also true that good deeds, regardless of the purity of the motives that lead to them, good deeds have lasting power. And Indeed, that's the hope. That's the hope that frees us to make sacrifices today and to give and to serve in risky ways. And therein lies the grace. Time and again, time and again, Jesus appeals to and works with the self-serving, self preserving instincts of his listeners. Think about so many of his teachings. You want to gain your life, he says? Well, you have to be willing to lose it for my sake. You want to be given all these things? Well, strive for the kingdom of God first if you want to be entrusted with the true riches, be faithful with the dishonest, the less true wealth of the world. If you want to receive what is your own, what's due to you, be faithful with what you have right here, right now. You see, grace heals and elevates nature. Grace heals and elevates our nature. It does not obliterate it. Grace works with our nature, not against it. So says Catholic theologian Gary Chapman, and he goes on to say that any account of our moral life, any account of our moral life must begin with who we are as embodied beings. In this respect, we have to confess, we have to recognize that seemingly built into our very DNA is the desire for self-preservation and self-fulfillment. and Those aren't bad things either. God created us. God created us for life and tells us to choose life. But of course, sin and fear and greed distort that. But Jesus doesn't give up. Instead, in grace, Jesus takes the primal fears that we all share He takes the fears that we all share about the future, about eternal life, about our goodness, our desire to be good, to make a good impact on life in the world. Jesus takes those and converts them into actions in service of others. That's grace. That's not all that we see today in this parable. It shifts the focus, the very moral conundrum it presents to us shifts the focus away from the ambiguous morality of the actor, and toward the nature of God and God's economy. That is, it draws our attention, our allegiance toward the real, the divine economy in which self and other interests are not mutually exclusive, in which our relationship to money and wealth is complicated and fraught with danger, and filled with possibility. It's the true economy that operates with true values, different values, and nurtures and rewards good and rights wrongs. It's the economy where we, like the steward, can count on a future. A future in which good deeds and bad deeds count and are counted, they matter, even if their reward or consequences are not immediate. That's good news for those of us who long for justice. And in this economy, this ultimate economy, we can invest in eternal life and in ultimate things we can work toward salvation, our own salvation and the salvation of the world. Not as a way to be God ourselves or to control God, but because of God's grace. Because God meets us where we are, because this is God's world, We are God's people, and God meets us where we are and uses all things for good. Amen.